Today's scripture reading is from 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 12 to 9. Again, it is 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 12 to 9. Uh, if you don't have a Bible with you, you can find one under the chair in front of you, and you can open it to page 904. Please stand for the reading of God's word. Hear now the word of the Lord. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, everybody. It's good to see you and to worship with you. And just as a reminder of what was announced, starting this Wednesday and for three weeks, we are going to go over the first portion on the book of Revelation. And so John, the Apostle John is given uh, this revelation, and there are seven visions in there. And we're just going to tackle uh, the first one, the first vision that Jesus gives to John uh, to the seven churches. And so if you are interested, you're more than welcome to come, and I hope that many of you will actually come and that we can learn together. Let's pray before we start the message today. Blessed Lord, who caused all scriptures, holy scriptures, to be written for our learning, grant us so to hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them, that we may ever embrace and hold fast to the blessed hope of everlasting life, which you have given us in our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. We are on chapter 15 of the first letter to the Corinthians, and it is on the resurrection. This is the classic chapter, and even portion of Scripture dealing with the subject of resurrection. Why the Apostle, why the Apostle Paul deals with this subject is made clear in the first verse that was read just now, and how he heard about the denial of the resurrection, however, he does not really say, but this question gives him the opportunity to bring before the church the doctrine of the bodily resurrection of Christ, which of course goes alongside with the death of Christ. So in chapter 15, verses 1 to 3, Paul talks about how he faithfully communicated this very gospel to the Corinthians. He delivered it to them as he received it. There was no mixing of ingredients. He didn't take a little of this and a little of that and then bake a cake. He said, I deliver to you as a first importance what I also received. He was a waiter. He was a mailman. 
and that is the role of a preacher. He is to be the delivery man or the waiter of God's word. And as we are on the final portion of this letter, this is the understanding that we receive from God's word as well. When the people of God receive the instruction that God intends for his people, they mature, they grow. When the preacher delivers the word of God, the people grow. It's that simple and yet that amazing. That means your growth then, your growth, your spiritual growth as a Christian depends on you being able to listen to the word of God, the instruction that it gives, and then to respond accordingly. I understand that there might be some nuance. Even parents who give hot food to their infants blow on it to cool it off somewhat. But that what they won't do is just because it's too hot for their kid, abandon the food entirely and give them a can of Coke instead. Empty calories will not produce the healthy growth in a child you would expect at that age. The preacher's job is to give what was given to him, and that's what we call expository preaching. An expositional sermon is a sermon that takes the main point of the passage of the Scripture and makes it the main point of the sermon and then applies it to our life today. This is our church's priority because this means that we take Scripture as a first importance. Paul shows this to the Corinthians by communicating to the church the historic reality of Christ's resurrection. And he gives two kinds of witness accounts. One being the scriptures. That means the Old Testament that had prophesied Christ dying for our sins, being buried and raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. In accordance with the scriptures meant that God had a plan and that plan was fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Exactly to the T of how God said it would happen. The scriptures prophesying this were written hundreds and sometimes a thousand years before Christ, before Christ was even born. And the second kind of witness were eyewitnesses. These are people that physically saw the resurrected Lord. It wasn't in a dream or vision. It wasn't mass hallucination because that is not a thing. These were credible eyewitness accounts from people that ranged from his disciples, people who ate, drank, slept, and traveled with our Lord day in and day out for three years, but also from people who didn't even believe in him. But then they saw him, and they ultimately saw that he was resurrected. All the way to one untimely born, Paul, who persecuted and even murdered Christians until Jesus met him on the road to Damascus. And now in verse 12, Paul gets to one of the reasons why he started to write this portion of this letter on the resurrection. Some people were denying the bodily resurrection. And from verses 12 to 19, there is a fascinating and brilliant approach to the resurrection and its utter importance to the Christian. The physical and bodily resurrection is a key part 
of Christian doctrine. It is an essential element of our faith that cannot be negotiated or compromised because it is the goal that God has established for his redemptive purpose. God will gather to himself throughout history people, not just in spirit, but resurrected physical bodies that will live forever to praise him forever, to serve him forever, and to enjoy him forever. The Old Testament prophets spoke of this as we've gone over last week. But the Old Testament patriarchs also believed in this. Uh, Job chapter 19, verses 25 to 27. Job says this, For I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has, thus, has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh... I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold, and not another. My heart faints within me. Even thinking about the resurrection, Job would get excited. His heart was faint within him. Abraham was able to offer up his son Isaac on the altar because of his faith that God could raise him from the dead. And we see that in Hebrews chapter 11. When Lazarus died, Martha believed that Lazarus would be resurrected on the last day. But it was Jesus who responded to her by saying, I am the resurrection and life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet he shall live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? And by the time we get to the portion of this letter, this is what Paul is saying that he delivered to the Corinthians. It's the message of resurrection. He reminds them again in a second letter. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, he says, Since we have the same spirit of faith according to what has been written, I believed, and so I spoke. We also believe, and so we also speak, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. This is what the scriptures attest to. This is what the eyewitness accounts verify. Christ was raised, and therefore we, all who are with him, will also be raised to be with him. These are the basic doctrines of the Christian faith, not only to those in Christ, but as I've went over last week, all will be resurrected. Paul, in front of the Governor Felix in Acts 24 says this, But this I confess to you, that according to the way which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets. That's the Old Testament, right? He's saying even in the Old Testament, having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. And this is what the people of God have believed throughout history. Now we get to this portion in Scripture that we read. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? Why then didn't some of the Corinthians believe in the resurrection? Perhaps their reasoning 
wouldn't be different or much different than those in our contemporary age. There were those in that time who also believed that the body was evil, that the body didn't house the true self. You can see this in the Greek writings back in the day. You see, the true self is the pure self, but when it was fettered or attached to the flesh, that's when you started to have these problems. That's what they believed. In today's language, this will be called expressive individualism. And maybe that sounds a little highfalutin, but it encapsulates what our current culture most suffers from now. And going off of Rousseau's understanding that a person is unfortunately a sum of outside forces, ideas, institutions, and social practices, expressive individualism holds that humans are indeed then truly defined by their psychological self or core. And we see this displayed in our mainstream literature, books, even movies, where Elsa has an epic journey of self-discovery, or Ray wanting to learn the ways of the Force only to discover that it was within her all this time. It's in our social media where influencers tell you to discover your true self. If you discover your true self, then you'll be happy. But if anything gets in the way of discovering or living out your true self, then cut it off. Cancel them. Carve it out of your life, even if it means family members, including your own baby. These deceptions were prevalent even before Oprah encouraged her followers to speak their truth. She says, speaking your truth is the most powerful tool we all have. The idea that truth is malleable and personal isn't a recent invention. And combining that with Freud's claim, and this is Freud's claim, that sexual or genital, genital love affords a person the strongest experiences of satisfaction. That's what his claim was. That's what his writings were about. And so if sexual or genital love affords a person the strongest experiences of satisfaction, it shouldn't surprise us then of the current transgender movement sweeping across the world making its way even on the Olympic platform. People have come to believe the deception that the only reason, the only reason that they cannot be happy is because they cannot be their true self. And the reason why they cannot be their true self, it's because the marketplace, the things that are outside, cannot supply what the true self truly desires. So the only option that we have in the world is that we must increase the options that the marketplace can supply. This sin goes back to the Corinthians, but even goes back further into the garden when the serpent says, you will be like God. See, that's the ultimate rebellion. In 1970, Martin Lloyd-Jones criticized the modern view of man that he represents uh, in 1970, people would say, man's ultimate you know, sin is something that we'll label as sickness. Excuse me. People would say man is sick. Humans are sick. 
And while Martin Lloyd-Jones agreed that humans were sick, he would respond to say, that isn't the essence of the problem. The essence of the problem is that man is a rebel, and that's what it is. We want to be God. And this kind of thinking affected the teachings in Roman and Greek cultures. Intelligent people did not want to believe that the dead would rise again. They didn't want to believe that the body would rise again. They believed in the immortality of the soul, that the psychological self or your true self, it's immortal, it's immutable perhaps. But they would deny the resurrection of the body. And perhaps adaptations of this kind of belief would lead someone to think that their body does not match their soul. Like my inner self is not matched with my body. My psychological self is not matched with my physical body. However, Paul begins to remind them of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. If you believe in Jesus, you believe in the resurrection of the body. That's what Paul is reminding the Corinthians. It is because of the resurrection that you are saved. It was because of the resurrection that you can now be in Christ. This is the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. And the gospel is that Christ died for our sins accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, and he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. If you believe in the resurrection of Christ, you also believe in resurrection, is what Paul is getting at. And from verse 13, he's going to affirm the resurrection now through negative statements, negative conditional statements. And once again, it's a truly fascinating and brilliant approach. He's going to make three negative conditional statements followed by a conclusory remark. And these statements and remarks are consequences of denying the resurrection. That's the title of today's sermon. What if there is no resurrection? In verse 13, but if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. Here's the first conditional. If you deny the resurrection, Christ has not been raised. It's a very simple and logical deduction. However, it would be contrary to the facts presented in the verses before that the Corinthians seem to adopt. Christ, who is truly man, Christ died. He wasn't some apparition. He wasn't a figment of people's imaginations. He was recorded as growing in wisdom and stature in Luke 2 because he was a man. <clears throat> he grew tired and weary, John 4. He slept, Mark 4. He wept, John 11. He was hungry, Matthew 4. He was thirsty when he was hung on the cross, John 19. He was beaten, Luke 22. Luke 22, excuse me. He was scourged and whipped, Matthew 27. He was nailed to a cross, and he died as men die. They made sure that he was dead by piercing his side. They took him down from the cross, and they wrapped his body in linens, and then they buried him. He died as a man. And when he was resurrected, he rose as a man. This is crucial that we affirm this. Paul's point is that if we deny the resurrection of the body, 
we are denying the resurrection of Christ because Christ's resurrection was of the body. Jesus would appear before the disciples after he was raised and he would ask them for something to eat. Do you have something to eat? And they gave him fish. It was vital that the disciples knew that it was Jesus' body that was resurrected. The denial of the bodily resurrection of Christ then is a sounding death knell for all of Christianity, which leads to the second conditional. Verse 14, and if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. If Christ has not been raised, all gospel preaching is useless. It's empty. If Christ is still dead, then all the apostolic writings are useless. All their preaching is lost, and the whole gospel is flipped. Christ himself declared that as Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights, he too would be buried and rise again from the dead. By rising from the dead, that meant that his atonement on the cross was accepted. Jesus' resurrection was God's validation of his sacrifice. If Christ did not rise, then God did not validate his sacrifice. And if there is no validation, then his death had no value. Without the indication that God's wrath was satisfied, his death would have meant nothing at all because his resurrection was the validation of Jesus' atonement on the cross. In Romans chapter 1, Paul begins by writing, Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. We went over all of this. Concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness, by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Jesus Christ is declared to be the Son of God by his resurrection from the dead. Jesus addresses John in Revelation 1, 17 to 18. Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore and I have the keys of death and Hades. By raising Christ from the dead, God validated his atoning work on the cross. He demonstrates his satisfaction of placing his son in our place. Resurrection is the affirmation of the perfect life and complete death of Jesus Christ. It is critical to the gospel. To remove then the resurrection would be then to remove the gospel. If Jesus was not raised, then God is not satisfied. And if God is not satisfied, Jesus is not Lord. And all our preaching is all a sham. It's useless because Jesus did not then conquer death. He does not have the keys of death and Hades. If our preaching is useless, then your faith is also useless. It's worthless. You're all deluded because what is faith? Isn't it shown in Romans 10, 9? If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. This is not only what Paul preached, but all the apostles preached this. They preached a risen, 
living Savior who is Lord, who is seated at the right hand of God, who provides for us forgiveness and eternal life. But if Christ is not raised, faith in him is useless because dead people cannot save anyone. So anyone who has or even had faith, it's useless. They're fools. Abel, who had faith, offered up a righteous sacrifice. He was killed for it. That means he's a fool. Noah, who spent 120 years of his life building a boat, only to eventually die, a fool. Abraham, who left the comfort of his home to travel and suffer, he's a fool. Joseph, who didn't sleep with Potiphar's wife, only then to get jailed, he's a fool. Moses gave up being prince of Egypt to what? Hang out with slaves? He's a fool. David taking years of ridicule and hardship, being a nomad and wanderer to even different countries and nations because it wasn't right to take away the kingship away from Saul just yet. Fool. Hebrews 11 shows us that each one of these people, the heroes of the faith, did not receive what was promised because of the ultimate hope in the resurrection. If no resurrection, useless fools. You know, others were tortured, stoned. They were sawed in half. They were hung. They were cut down by swords. Others fled destitute. They were poor all their lives. They wandered in caves and fled to mountains. They all operated on faith. And if, they, if there is no resurrection, all their preaching, all their faith, useless. They were the ones misled and deceived. There is nothing to celebrate about them, for they were all fools. Which leads us to Paul's side point in verse 15. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. If Christ did not rise, the apostles are liars. The prophets are liars. To the point of even making angels out to be liars. Because it was the angels who came down to testify of the what? Of the good news of the Savior's birth on earth. It was the apostles that testified that they saw the risen Christ, that God had raised them up from the dead. All of apostleship, then, is a sham because the necessary qualification to be an apostle was to be a witness of the resurrected Christ. That was the testimony that Christ charged them to share. All throughout the book of Acts, you see the apostles get beaten, stoned, and killed for spreading this witness that they saw the living Christ. It really is then just all a sick, a sick conspiracy. They're all liars. That's how serious it is to take out the resurrection from the Christian faith. Without the resurrection, there is no teaching. There is no keen spiritual wisdom for life. The Christian religion is based off of the resurrection. If there is no resurrection, then there is no truth to the claims of the prophets and the apostles. And I think that's why there's so much confusion on what the gospel of Jesus Christ is today. 
One contemporary preacher, I saw this clip of him speaking, make its rounds in social media, would go on to say that he, the preacher, he came to declare that everyone going through a season of failure or depression was essentially to stay patient because God will work all things for your good. He was taking the side of man-centered theology. He would proceed to dramatically slam and pound his hand on the podium and emphatically proclaim that God working all things for your good, that's the gospel of Jesus Christ. God working all things for your good is not the gospel. The gospel is the proclamation of the person and work of Jesus Christ and how faith and faith alone in Christ appropriates that work to us. The gospel, understanding the gospel is vital and what's vital to the gospel is the person and work of Jesus Christ and the resurrection. And it's the premise and it's this premise that is restated in verse 16. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. Now, for over many centuries, liberal theologians have tried to take away the supernatural records of the scriptures. They take away the resurrection of Christ, claiming fidelity to modern science, and to try and reduce Christianity to some kind of ineffectual, emotive expression and call that love instead. But by doing so, they are not only saying that we should all live by our own moral standard, an ever-changing and ever-evolving one, but what they are really saying, if you are denying the resurrection, if you're denying the supernatural, you're saying that the preachers in the Old Testament and New Testament were liars. Then you are saying that God did not speak to the prophets and apostles. So that even the records that we have, then you can't trust it. It cannot be trusted. Then we have to use our own methods, our own ways of textual criticism to dig through all these falsities then to find the truth, the real truth. You know, I wonder at times if liberal theologians have figured out why people have been leaving their churches and denominations in droves. Because if they are right, then there is no need to go to church. And if they are wrong, then you'd better find a church that preaches the truth. Now he moves on to the third conditional statement in verse 17. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those, who have, then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If Christ was not raised, your faith is useless and... You are still in your sins. If Christ wasn't raised, then you are in your sins because sin rightfully killed Jesus. Sin defeated Jesus. Instead of a vindicated Christ, you have a condemned Christ. And a condemned Christ cannot justify anyone, let alone himself. Then there is no justification, no reconciliation, no salvation, no life. If Christ was not raised, then we are still under the bondage of sin. Then those who have fallen asleep means they died. These are people that are in the faith that have died. Those that have fallen asleep, they have perished forever. People who put their faith in God, they're gone forever. That means the dead are damned. 
If there is no resurrection, Christ was not raised, gospel preaching is useless, faith is worthless, all the apostles and prophets are liars, sin is not forgiven then, and the dead believers are all damned. And then here is the final conclusory remark in verse 19. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. If Christ in our faith was for this life and this life alone, we are to be most pitied. If Christ is just for the now, we have wasted our entire lives. It's not only a delusion, it is a most pitiful delusion. It is the waste of wastes, is what he is saying. If you do not believe in the resurrection, your life, your devotion, your faith, all the things that you have been believing, all the things that have been preached, it's the most pitiful one. But then there is verse 20. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those fallen asleep. But the reality is this. Christ has been raised in accordance with the scriptures and by the numerous eyewitness accounts. It really is a historical fact that can be empirically proven. And that's what's being written down. And that was what was being preached. And he is the first fruits of those that have fallen asleep. This is why when the high priest charged the disciples in Acts chapter 5, hey, you can't preach Christ and the resurrection anymore. You know what Peter said? Peter responded this way in Acts chapter 5. We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. Jesus is the first fruits and leader. They are witness to this. And so when they were saying, you can't talk about this anymore. We don't believe this. They couldn't say, oh, yeah, yeah, maybe. They couldn't because they were convinced, they were convicted that they must obey God rather than men because they really saw the Christ up to what point? Up to the point they were tortured, stoned, and murdered. Some will be hung upside down on a cross. Some will be stoned. Some, Paul is uh, traditionally known to have his head cut off. The only person apostle to have lived all his life was someone who was exiled to the island of Patmos. And the rest of the apostles died a gruesome death. But they couldn't help themselves because they saw what they saw. They didn't go out rich. They didn't have three houses. They didn't even have one house. But they saw what they saw. And they were convinced we must obey God rather than men. Because Jesus is the first fruits and he is the leader. In Acts 5, what I just read, the leader, if you 
opened it up, and you're just following along in Acts uh, chapter 5, verse 31. It says, God exalted him at his right hand as leader. The word leader, the L is capitalized. That's interesting, right? Because they were trying to translate a word from the Greek into English. Leader is capital L. And the translated word is from archegos. Archegos means the initiator, the pioneer. And yes, it means leader of a group. William Barclay would note that it's archegos. It's the archegos on a ship. So an archegos is a crew member on a ship that is a strong swimmer. And if a ship were to hit a rock or the jagged rocks, what the archegos would do is he would tie a rope around his waist and he would swim all the way to shore. And after he had swam to shore, he would secure the rope on somewhere along the shore so that the others can grab the rope then and then go into, safe, into the shore safely. That was the role of Archegos. Christ is the Archegos. When the ship crashed into the jagged rocks, Christ saved us from our impending and eternal death. He went ahead of us and he anchored the line for us and now is leading and guiding us into the reality of the kingdom of God. If Christ had drowned, there would be no hope for us at all. But Jesus swam through the waters of death and made it to the shore. The resurrection is a reality, and we are now living in this reality. Because Christ has been raised, the gospel isn't useless, but it's effective. Our faith isn't worthless, but it's priceless. The apostles and prophets proclaimed reality. Our sins are forgiven, and believers who die will be called into eternal glory. Our hope is not only in this life, but in the life to come. And we are, of all people, most blessed. Praise be to God. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the message that you give us, the word that you give us. We ask, God, that we would also be people of faith, as we have read in your holy scriptures, that we would imitate Christ all our lives, knowing that you are the Archegos, and we are now to follow you to eternal life. Oh God, we pray that you would empower us by your Holy Spirit, that we may live a life worthy of the calling that you've given us, that our lives may be pleasing sacrifices to you, that as we look forward to the hope that you've given us, a hope that is unfailing because of what was secured in Christ, that we will look forward to this hope with joy and certainty. And we thank you, God, that it is given to us by your Son, Jesus. And we give you the glory and worship now. Let's take this time to pray, and let's reflect on what we have been given. We have been given this reality of the resurrection. We have been given this reality that Christ has been raised from the dead. And if Christ has been raised from the dead, then we ought to follow Christ as he commands us to, living a life of faith and obedience that is pleasing to him. So let's pray and reflect and lift up our lives to him.